You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My Unusually Well-Informed guest today is Erica Lee Garcia. Erica is an engineer and a Lean Six Sigma black belt. She helps leaders in manufacturing, mining, and professional services reduce operating costs while building great workplace culture. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tim. It's great to be here. My pleasure. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, what first caused you to take an interest in engineering? Well, the short version of that answer would be that someone told me that I should try it because I had good math and science marks. And they said, you know, it's pretty hard and I'm not one to back down from a challenge. And so that was pretty much enough. I, I had this idea that I could take math and science and apply it to the real world and make a difference. That was sort of my approximate math that I was doing as a 17 year old kid deciding this, uh, you know, what would determine the, the course of my life, what I was to study. And it was sort of either engineering or music was sort of what I had it narrowed down to. So in the end, I decided I wanted to stick with the engineering because I could probably always keep up the music as a hobby. And that was what led me to take that one step uh, in that direction, apply for engineering. And I only figured out much later what a good fit engineering was for me. Um, I trace it back to being a rural kid. I really liked being outside. I love digging puddles, you know, digging around in the mud and just having an impact on my, on my physical surroundings was really important to me. Very, very rewarding for me, even from a young age. And I got a little older and I took my first chemistry course. And I remember seeing the periodic table for the first time. And I was just mesmerized. I'm like, that's it. That's all the stuff. There it is right there. That's all we need. We just got to put this stuff together in the right combination. And somewhere in there, I think as a young teenager, I saw the Michael Jackson video, Man in the Mirror. Um, You know, he has that line, if you want to make the world a better place, Mm. take a look at yourself and then make the change. And it just sort of struck a chord in me. And I remembered that. And I felt like, you know, whatever's going on in the world, if there's poverty, if there's chaos, if there's disaster, if there's conflict, I I don't really know about that, but I want to be part of this. I want to be part of the solution, whatever that looks like. And so it just always sort of struck me that this was a powerful and permanent way to do that, you know, to shape the world around me. And I only connected these dots, by the way, way after. <laughs> I didn't really know what a good fit engineering was for me until I got into it and got through that, what I call the valley of despair, where I completely doubted myself and all of my life decisions. Um <laughs> And then kind of came through it to realize, nope, this was a good idea and there's a good fit for me and I'm going to stay and I'm going to make this mine. That's, that's such a great answer. Did you uh, find time to dabble with music in the meantime? Yes. Thank you for asking. Um, Until COVID put the mockers on it, Mm. we were going every, every month ish to a nursing home and I would sing um, jazz standards. I have a jazz trio that, I, that I'm with. I've been doing that since 2014. Wow, that's beautiful. So, I love that. Thank you. Should I, I mean, look for that on YouTube? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I can actually say that I'm a professional musician because we do get paid a little honorarium oh, nice. for showing up at the old folks home. Mostly it's just for the joy of doing it. Yeah. And to be honest, the best thing that's come out of it for me has been learning how not 
to be perfectionistic. Mm. I, I'm not trying to be Beyonce. I'm, I'm just singing for the joy of making music and for making people's lives a little brighter on a Sunday evening. That's you know, beautiful. yeah, it's, it's very humbling <laughs> and it's hard sometimes. Um, but it's very worthwhile. And actually the two other people that are in my band, um, they are also engineers by background and they are also very committed to that sort of vulnerability that comes from doing something that you know you're not that good at, but it doesn't matter because you're just having fun anyway. So it's, it's interesting that uh, you talk about perfectionism because you are... Uh, black belt in lean and six sigma, which are, are to, to a layman anyway, to me appear to yeah. be uh, lean is like, we don't need to be perfect. We just need to be better. Whereas six sigma strikes mm -hmm. me as pursuing perfection. Yes. Yeah. You're not wrong about that. I mean, the definition of six sigma itself is a quality standard. So let's say you have a standard that says, you know, for every million things that we create, this could be parts we're manufacturing, uh, banking uses this. So for every million transactions we do with a customer, um, it means that only 3.4 of them or less will go wrong. We'll have something wrong go with them. All the rest of them will be perfect by our definition. Um, so absolutely, we're trying to weed out sources of variation. We're trying to weed out sources of error. Um, and we are pursuing that, that elusive goal of, of zero things, zero PPM, we call it parts per million wrong, um, is absolutely where we're going. But, you know, nothing's ever perfect, really, but we can get darn close. And that's what Six Sigma is about. Um, so how does that square with me saying it's okay for me not to be, you know, the best singer in the world? I think these are different tools we can pick up at different times for different purposes. Because when we're seeking to get rid of defects and problems in a, in a process, we do that very specifically, you know, with that intention of seeking perfection and, and getting better. Um, whereas when we're looking to enjoy ourselves, if that becomes the goal, um, then the, the technical part of it doesn't, doesn't enter into it. It's sort of like we, we, we just got a different definition of success, I guess. And maybe you could say that that's perfect too. Yeah, I like that. So um, your chops is a Six Sigma practitioner, got proven early at Magna Powertrain. Um, you led a team that was aiming to reduce scrap rates and improve quality. Can you talk about that effort and how it illustrates Six Sigma principles? Well, I mean, first of all, Six Sigma is it's like the big guns. It's like the chainsaw. You only break it out when the screwdriver is not going to cut it, when the smaller tools, the hand tools have not been able to dismantle this issue. So we were having an issue with the press force. I'm guessing you know this, but maybe your audience hasn't seen my, the talk that I gave about this, um, where basically where we're inserting a bearing inside the housing. It's an interference fit, which means that the bearing is bigger than the housing, but we do that because we want to insert it and get it to stay there. That's a manufacturing engineering trick. And the problem with it was that when we were putting it in, we were getting, uh, we were measuring the press force. And that was one of the um, parameters that we needed to pass in order for the, uh, the water pump subassembly to be deemed good and to move on into the next phase of the process. And we were, I think it was costing us a few thousand dollars a week because if the press force was either too high or too low, it meant that there was a probability that the bearing was going to walk out in the field. In other words, the water pump would malfunction. You couldn't trust so it. So as a safeguard, 
Exactly. Yeah. So as a safeguard against that, we had to chuck out the whole thing. So that was, I think it was about $35 worth of parts in each sub-assembly, but it was also the time that it was taking us to put together these parts, chucking them out. Absolutely terrible for the company, but great for me because it was an opportunity. It's a problem that needed to be solved. Well, you're right. I did hear this story and I won't spoil it for the for the audience because uh, it's like a murder mystery almost. Like you really had to go back <laughs> And, and investigate, you know, hunt down all the clues. What, what were kind of the clues that you were looking yeah. for to tease that out? Thank you. Cause I thought it was fun too. I was like, <laughs> all right, nobody else has been able to Engineering solve this, she wrote. we're going to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we, we got together a group, a cross-functional group. First of all, you have to picture I'm 26, 27 years old. I've just graduated from university. I'm still in that kind of, did I make a huge mistake? Do I totally suck at this? It's very possible. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I can do this, but my curiosity outweighed my self-doubt in this case. I put my hand up for the training. There was a ton of statistical tools in it and statistics had not been my strong suit in school. I thought it was kind of tedious, kind of boring and very complicated. But once I had this problem in front of me to animate me and I had a group of people who were looking at me going, okay, so what do we do? Ms. Six Sigma, you're the one with the training. Like, right. you know, no one was actually razzing me, but you know, I felt that pressure. Like I, I needed to step into my, my leadership. And, and so I did, and I am going to try to recall some of the root causes we investigated. I think we looked mostly at size because we wanted to know, like if, if the bearing outer diameter is varying too much, then, okay, that could cause this press force variation. Um, well, I reviewed so it recently yeah. and there were a yeah. couple of factors that you you revealed and one of them was that the ironically the inner finish on the sleeve was too smooth it was it was almost like you could say too high a quality but it was binding yes. correct yeah. that's what it turned out to be sorry i thought you wanted to know some of the things we ruled out first oh okay sorry um the more no that's okay the more obvious things yeah because you'd think that it would be the size um but it wasn't the size and we ruled that out we figured out that the also the operators were oiling the bearings to try and get them to slide in more easily. They were doing a little bit of DIY right. on the they process were trying to help. unofficially. They were totally trying to help. And yeah. it was not helping at all in the bigger picture. <laughs> so once we sort of got, we put a pin in that, we were able to remove that as a sort of source of noise in our data. We were able to, as, as you said, exactly right, we honed in on the inner surface finish of the bearing. And it, it's machined. Um, by a tool. And I guess they were changing the tool more often than they technically needed to because they thought they were helping again. Um, so I don't know. It's so interesting. This story is full of well-intentioned people trying to do the right thing, but the factors collide together to create this very complex problem that nobody could figure out. Um, following the tools, you know, I was this plucky young upstart just trying to do what I could do because I wanted to prove myself. Um, to myself and to other people. And we ended up cracking the code and uh, we changed the surface finish spec and we were able to significantly re re reduce the amount of press force rejects. One of the Yay. exciting things, yes. One of the exciting <laughs> things about that kind of work is that you can really document the savings, right? I oh mean, yeah. It's, it's not going in the garbage this often and mm -hmm. we do it this, this many times a week. So you can, you can really uh, demonstrate the savings, which is so important. Um, yeah, that was one of my favorite parts too. Yeah, you can you can justify the the effort absolutely. Um, 
let's contrast that a little bit because that was Six Sigma, which is really looking to sort of perfect things. Yeah. Um, another great example from your career is when you applied lean principles uh, to improve both an assembly line and introduce continuous improvement at Barrett Gold. What did mm -hmm. you accomplish and how did lean principles play a role? Well, lean is all about reducing waste and looking at the flow through a process. So what I did once I moved over to mining was a little more indirect um, because I was now at the corporate office and I was influencing people indirectly. But I would say that what I did was I planted the seed that better is possible. You know, we don't just have to stick with what we're doing. We don't just have to, you know, uh, keep it the same because it's always been that way or because our boss says that it has to be that way. There are ways to improve and to put that hat on. Um, and it takes a lot of optimism and it takes a lot of courage to try and go against the way things have been. I think there's definitely an, an ingrained comfort with the way things are that, that we have to push back against, I think, as human beings in order to participate in this, this change process. Um, and what I've been able to do so far in my career is basically teach people how to make things just a little bit better. That's how I would characterize most of what I did for the first half, three quarters of my career it was just about tweaks in the system. Let's do 2% better here. Let's do 5% better there. Let's do 10% better over here. We want to really make a splash. And it all adds up because it's high volume and often high value stuff as well. So between those two things, um, I, I sometimes explain it like it's like finding money in the couch cushions, right. only you've got a million couches. <laughs> so a couple of pennies adds up, right? That, that's enough to justify my salary and then some. Well, so I'd like to pull on, on a couple of threads there. One is um, when we talked about the other example, it was really straightforward to do the math in terms of what you were saving. Yeah. But when you're saying, let's do everything a little bit better, sometimes it's not even worth demonstrating that, you know, if, if you take an assembly process that involves stamping, turning over, stamping again, but we can do it in a way that doesn't involve the turnover, that's easier and faster and more reliable, but how, how am I going to really quantify that? It's a good idea, but you can't necessarily put it on your resume as a big yeah. saving. Mm -hmm. it, it, is there a tension there between Six Sigma and Lean in terms of how easy it is to demonstrate the value you provide? It, not so much between Lean and Six Sigma. I mean, those are two complementary tools, Six Sigma based on variation, eliminating or reducing variation, and Lean based on uh, reducing uh, waste, waste or in, uh, improving flow. And there's a lot of overlap between the two of them, to be honest. There's, you know, different methodologies, different ways to kind of snag the problem. But then once you do, um, I'm one of those people that sees the connections as opposed to the differences. So I'm sure there are people who would say, no, they're completely different methodologies. But I'm like, are you even certified? Yeah, not yeah. really. Yeah, no, that's one of my strengths is connectedness. So yeah. seeing the similarities there. But anyway, um, to your question about uh, cost savings or being able to validate the ROI with a calculation, that is for sure attention. And it's a conversation within the change making community as well. Some people feel that everything must be justified and you really need to kind of up your game and figure out how to evaluate even a small thing like you discussed. Um, although if you're saving on cycle time in that example, that should be actually pretty easy to calculate because you can look at how many parts you can make in a, a week for the same fixed cost 
there's an incremental savings there that you could that you could calculate shake out pretty easily. But if it's something that's not affecting cycle time, if it's not affecting a bottleneck process, I mean, you're right, it's still worth doing. And there is inherent value in just having the minds of the many engaged. That's kind of a Toyota concept that that it, there is value in itself of having people engaged and paying attention, making things better, taking ownership over the process around them. And you don't need the calculation to make it that that's kind of the cultural side of, of this continuous improvement game. Um, I personally think it's interesting. I accept the challenge. Um, you know, let's figure out a way to calculate it. I, I would call that a value creation as opposed to a cost savings. Right. Um, and discerning folks know the difference between those two things and value creation won't necessarily show up on the financial statements of the company at the end of the year, but it's in there. And it takes that um, sort of vision on the part of the of leadership to say, we want to go after value creation. We understand doing this and we don't need to waste time tripping over the calculations to know that that's the right thing to do. And that's where we're, that's where we're going to go. Yeah, because customer success and customer loyalty are lagging indicators. So mm -hmm. if we know we're making a better product, we don't necessarily yeah. need to sweat <clears throat> the pennies at this point. We, we can accept that it'll probably pay off down the road. It's true. Cost savings is such, um, I found as I talk to potential customers and try to sort of position my value, I guess, in terms of a sales kind of conversation. When I say that I do cost savings, it evokes a completely different reaction than if I say I change culture, I help help you create value. Um, I mean, it sounds maybe it sounds a little bit like splitting hairs, but cost savings has such a bad rap. It's it's so it's associated with cutting jobs and you know walking up to people and shaking your fist and saying you better do this faster and just really making a negative tense environment for the sake of saving money. It's very, right. um, uh, very onerous, very, very threatening to people. Whereas value creation, I feel like that is a lot lesser known, um, but it's more about collaboration. It's more about engaging people. It's saying, you know, this is valuable. We want to do this no matter what the cost part of it is off to the side. It comes, but it's just not the focus. So you, you used, I think you used the phrase change management earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, uh, because it's such a common term of art, you probably just use it. But to me, it almost sounds like a pejorative, like disaster management or cancer management. It's like, oh, well, these mm. things have to have change is going to happen, but let's manage it. Let's keep it, you know, in a box. Mm. <laughs> it almost seems like the opposite of, of change championing or, or something more positive. It sounds too reactive. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I, I went to a change leadership conference a couple weeks ago, and this was actually a, an ongoing topic on, you know, on the threads that was saying, can change even be managed? Should we even mm. be using that term? And some people said yes, and some people said no, it was kind of interesting. Um, but to me, change management, it's when I would say about eight years into my career, I got the lean certificate, and I already had the Six Sigma black belt from before that, and I held the two up side by side and went, Hmm, there's a lot of overlap here. Like some of it is different, which is what we just discussed, but the part of it that's the same, which is about looking at the world around you, finding opportunities, like putting them in your basket and then looking at the basket and going, hmm, look at all these opportunities to improve I have. Which one should I spend my time on? Okay, now that I've picked out this one, how am I gonna get people rallied around me to 
to, to change this, to solve this problem? Whose, whose input do I need? Do I need a, a financial uh, validation of this? Do I just go ahead and do it? What are all the technical changes that I need once I start to do the root cause analysis and I figure out what I need to actually physically shift to, to cause this problem to go away? Um, all of that, that's all the same, depending on, it doesn't matter which methodology you're using. So I put, uh, that's, I call those change management skills mm -hmm. um, because you're basically convincing people to come out of their, um, I would say like their uh, status quo coma, you're shocking their system. And I've since learned a little bit about how that goes. You're, you're literally triggering people's physiological fight or flight responses when you introduce change. Yeah. And that's why people resist it so much. It's, it's not always a thinking thing. We have thoughts about the change, but they're usually trying to justify the feelings that we're having, which are just often just fear. And there are so many techniques to understand that and to work with that. And that's kind of the human side that I find fascinating. It's not just a technical thinking exercise. Um, there's the business side of it, which I find interesting as well. And I think most powerfully underestimated is the human side. Okay. So um, let me look into that a little bit too, because you have a talk or a YouTube uh, uh, video that talks about, I, I always press that button, right? So you're yeah. looking at a process, you know, maybe it's um, once I put in three digits on the microwave, why doesn't it just start instead of having to hit the start button or, or whatever it is, right? So sometimes you have to hit cook and then the time. Why is that? You know, why not just put in the time and have it go the default? Um, and so you can, you can look at some, it doesn't matter when you're in the kitchen once a day, but when you're doing it a thousand times a day, it makes a difference to how much time you spend. So you could look at a way to reduce the number of times somebody has to press a button. But the thing about change you talked about fight or flight. I mean, a possible reaction is either you're making my life easier, which means I'm closer to the door in terms of losing my job, yeah. or you're making my job harder, in which case you're making my job harder. Yep. The status quo is fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> and how do you 100%. get people off of that, uh, that sort of committed to the, the status quo? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is you have to make them safe. And I'll say this to anyone that I work with, please, please, please don't use the changes that I help you work on or find to cut people's jobs. Do not do that, please, because you're going to get a short term bump in you know, savings from what you don't have to pay them anymore. But you are going to pay in the long term mm -hmm. because you've now just established this fear in everyone else and this resentment now that all of these survivors have having watched their coworkers get fired for the sake of the thing that you brought into their lives right. you can see how you're setting yourself up to fail right so do not do that say as i heard uh, an hr leader do when i was just that little green um six sigma black belt candidate they said, you know what? No one's going to lose their job because of this. Do not think that. It has that whiff of efficiency and we're problem solving and we're trying to make things more streamlined and cheaper. However, we will find you something else to do if we are able to reduce, you know, reduce the amount of work that you need to do to the extent that you're not needed on that particular assembly line, for example. We'll find something else for you to do. So that's kind of like putting in the floor, right? right. <laughs> that's psychological safety. You create that first. And then you need to get them to understand how their lives are going to be better for what you're introducing. 
And it could be a bit of a, a hard sell because you're taking, like you said, they're, you're either taking away something that they know how to do and they, maybe they feel a little bit accomplished. They feel a little bit attached to that task um, or you're adding on more things for them to do in which case they think that you're ruining their life, right? So either way, um, you, you wanna make sure that you work with people to understand make sure that they understand how they're going to benefit when things get better. And it, it is sometimes a, a pretty tough sell. Like I want to be authentic when I talk to people, I don't want to feed them a line that's insincere, right. you know, just manipulate them. Um, when I worked at Magna, this is a tremendous company to work for, they had employee profit sharing. Hmm. So I, I could legitimately say, <laughs> I know it seems trivial, but this problem that we're having is, is it's coming out of all our pockets we can do better and it'll come back to all of us, not just the satisfaction of, of solving the problem um, and the pain that we no longer have to go to, to haul these parts around and, you know, put them in the scrap heap. And um, I, I forget if we had any rework processes, not for those we didn't, but for other problems I've worked on, sometimes they'd have to go at the end of the shift and redo the same work that they just did that's frustrating, you know, sure. that they, they, they don't like that. So you find the bits and pieces of the things that they don't like that you're going to help them solve and move forward from. And I would say just working on building the relationship as well, like just helping them know you as a person and what your, you know, what your motives are and getting to know them a little bit as a person and um, lean at its basis is, uh, is about shared purpose. So finding that shared purpose and using that to leverage and I would say kind of turn the volume down on whatever differences you have, whatever disagreements you have, um, I think is a really, really key part of getting people on board. When we talk about Lean and Six Sigma, um, Toyota looms pretty large uh, mm -hmm. as far as being sort of the, the, the birthplace, maybe not of those techniques precisely, but you know the antecedents or whatever. Um, when I, as, again, as a layman, like the, the stories were told Sometimes I wonder if they're even true. Um, but the story is that <clears throat> Toyota emerging from the Second World War had very little in the way of resources. And so they couldn't do things the American way, the way Chrysler, GM, and Ford were doing, which is we're making cars. Let's make 10,000 bumpers, 10,000 hoods, 10,000 roofs, and then we'll put them together into 10,000 cars because they didn't have machines big enough to do that. They couldn't afford the inventory and they couldn't afford the risk of making 10,000 and finding out that 9,000 of them are, are now garbage, that, they're, that they don't meet you know, the force insertion criteria. Yeah. So is it true that that was the basis for a lot of the thoughts that went into Lean and Six Sigma? I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, right? I, I, I would guess that that could be true. The origin story that I've heard around Lean and Toyota more specifically is that um, he watched his mother weaving a loom as a child mm. and started to understand the process that she was going through and look for ways that he could incrementally improve what she was doing at home in terms of her weaving. And then that sort of grew into this, you know, desire to go out in the world and make bigger things happen. So very well could be true that that's sort of, it, it, I, I think it fits kind of the narrative that you described because there are these humble beginnings, right? And, and learning how to do things um, on a very simple, small scale. Um, I mean, to this day, uh, 
I'm not sure if this is Toyota more generally, but definitely in lean circles, it's more than acceptable to do your writings, do your drawings in pencil and erase them and update them as you go. Because that's just simple. It's just a way to keep that information, keep that thought process flowing. Um, value stream mapping, which is a technique that's um, pretty complex, even though it's got a simple outcome. Basically, you want to find and eliminate sources of waste in your process and improve flow. Um, yeah, I was, I'm just rereading that because I'm putting together a, an online learning module on the eight wastes for, some, uh, for a client of mine. So I sort of have to go back to the beginning myself and refresh myself on all these topics we're doing. Uh, yeah. Is the term of art for that muda? I've heard this term mm -hmm. used in relation. Yep. That's the Japanese word meaning waste, muda, M-U-D-A. And one of the forms of muda is excess inventory, yep, which many have interpreted as any inventory at all, which results mm -hmm. in just-in-time delivery of parts. And um, some people are, are saying that the current troubles we're having with our supply chains could be attributed to this absolute minimum of inventory at all times. Do you see it that way or is it more complex than that? Well, supply chains are incredibly complex. I think that there are probably any number of things that we could look at depending on what the symptoms were. Um, I, 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 one thing I can comment on with, with um, I would say with authority, would be to say that there is a way that the, that the term lean gets overused. Mm. And that is to say, um, we run really lean. We're a lean organization, but what they mean is we're understaffed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you do need work in process. You do need inventory along the way to make sure that you can catch up with the cascading effect um, of, uh, you know, of your supply chain. Um, so having too little inventory, that's not lean, that's improper planning. Right. Right. So I, I, I this is there. I'm very glad you brought that up. Uh, you sort of brought it up. You gave me a window to bring it up yep. because it, I think it's such a misconception that lean is always about less and less and less. It's about having what you need to accomplish the, the result that you need. Yeah. And I... Sorry, it's always. No, that's okay. Um, it's always about a pull. I think that's another way we can describe lean supply chains. Mm -hmm. um, nothing gets made until the end customer triggers it. And then the next to last process step makes it. And then the next to last process step triggers the one before. So it's always a pull, not a push, right. which is a little bit what you were describing about the difference between Toyota and Chrysler. Back before. in the day, anyway. That, I that think was all a push. I think they've copied, would you... Uh, I know you're not in the automotive industry mm -hmm. anymore, or maybe you are with some of your clients, but mm -hmm. I mean, you were in Magnus, you were right on the kind of, you were very aware of what manufacturers were doing, but it strikes me that most car companies have really come around to the Toyota production system, the way of thinking. A lot of them have their own branded system um, and they, they pick and choose parts of it. And something else that's really interesting that happens is that it goes out of fashion. They'll have mm. maybe a new CEO come in or they'll say, no, that, that wasn't working. Um, and, and so I think it's, I think it's very much a, a patchwork out there of OEMs who do it that way and OEMs who don't. And I can say when I worked as a manufacturing engineer, um, we supplied Honda and we also supplied Ford. And I had both of those lines under my portfolio and the way that those customers treated us gave me a sense of just how divergent their 
processes and their culture were. Like it's one thing to have the operating practices and then it's another thing, the mindset and the assumptions and the way that you deal, you know, the way that you have conversations. Um, very, very different. I, I believe the differences are still out there to this day. Culture does not change easily. Yeah. Well, th- there's a few anecdotes that support that. I, I watch a TV show called AutoLine and they they talk a lot I- about the auto industry and they, I forget which body it was, but there was a survey done of parts suppliers and Honda and Toyota right at the top, as far as easiest to work with all the parts suppliers say that. Uh, and I think that, that this, this idea that um, I, I forget how you phrased it, but oh, all the minds engaged. Yeah. Minds of the many. Minds mm-hmm. of the many. That many um, car companies are like, you just build the parts the way we tell you. Yeah. Whereas it seems like maybe Honda and Toyota might go to the parts suppliers and say, this is the problem we're having. Can you work with us? Maybe don't make I would it so smooth on the inside diameter. Right. It's, it's a much more collaborative mindset, I would say, in my experience. Sure. Um, there's, there's sort of this, um, there's like a humility to it, I think, as well. And there was a, a phrase that was used by a Honda executive that, that I met once who said, you know, it's like we're links in a chain. And you're in our chain too. And, you know, if you're, if you're weak, we're weak kind of thing. So that's why we're here to help you. We're not here to make you wrong. We're not here to punish you for this issue that you're having. We're, we're really here to help. And they, they seem to genuinely mean that it was, it was very eye-opening, very, um, uh, made of an impression on me for sure. Mm. So sort of tangentially related to the, the, the different way that OEMs could work with suppliers. It's almost a management relationship, and you've you've written about the the four uh, management styles in STEM. Mm. So, a couple of questions. One is, why do you? I know that you're involved in STEM, so you naturally observe those and have an opinion on on what the style should be. But are they really that different from what we'd find in other fields? That's a good question. I mean, I can't take credit for the four styles. That is research that came out of ILEAD, the Engineering Engineering Leadership Institute at the University of Toronto. So the four styles, now you're putting me on the spot to try to remember them. I'll try to remember with you. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I mean, the first one is that sort of classic technical mastery. So that's becoming an expert in something. And then what's interesting about the way that they define technical mastery is that it's also about passing along what you know, becoming a mentor, becoming a go-to person. And again, there's sort of a cultural flip there from some of the traditional ways of thinking where people would sometimes kind of say, well, this is what I know, and I'm going to keep it close to my chest, because that's my job security. So back to my point about first thing you want to do is make everyone feel psychologically safe. That also frees them up to share what they know to mentor people to give freely of the the insights that they have, so that you can solve problems and make things better. Um, The second one that's going to pop to mind most easily for me is collaborative optimization. And this is a skill that I happen to have, except I didn't know what it was called until, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, but it's basically the ability to bring other people's information together, synthesize it and use it to make decisions and move forward. Um, so it could be lean or six sigma, or I think it could be just sort of a generic um, facilitator skill set as well. Um, there's another one that's about uh, organizational innovation. It's about looking out you know, five, 10, 20 years into the future, what's our company going to be doing? 
um, what's our business model going to be, who are our customers going to be, and how are we kind of aligning ourselves for that now? And, and the other one was uh, like command and control or dictatorial. I forget the term that was used, but that was like the was first. That, the, that was the older on the one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I skipped that one because that's um, <laughs> not necessarily our favorite. It, well, it's managerial as opposed to lead, leadership. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of, again, an evolution. I think command and control definitely has its purpose. It's not that it's bad. Um, you know, you think about, for example, an emergency situation, let's say a group of doctors in an ER, they have protocols, they have someone who's going to bark orders at everybody else to get it done. And that's appropriate in that moment. Um, what you want to get away from, I think, is doing this barking at people um, with a sort of a power, power trip kind of a, a like a, a sense of superiority because people really don't like that when you yell at them and tell them what to do because you think you're better than them. So it's very much, again, kind of a cultural and attitudinal shift there. Um, and whenever possible, leading by influence, letting other people have their input, letting them, you know, explain what they think is the right thing to do, um, engaging and respecting them instead of just kind of do it my way. So, uh, we tend to apply Lean and Six Sigma to the goal of quality and efficiency of manufacturing. So it's about being able to make more, maybe with less resources and also meeting needs better. Yes. Um, you were a project manager at Waste for Life, which is a startup that aims to reduce the <laughs> damaging environmental impact of non-recycled plastic waste products and to promote yes, self-sufficiency and economic security for at-risk populations who depend on the waste to survive. So it's a very different perspective from let's create as much as we can, basically. Yeah. So how do we create things for easy disassembly, easy recycling, not to create toxic waste? What shifted in your perspective with that work? Only everything. <laughs> I watched uh, an engineering professor give a talk called Dare to Live Your Life Out Loud when I was in my second year post post engineering grad. Um, and she was an engineering professor as well. So long story short, she took a sabbatical to Argentina and saw this opportunity to help people who were surviving by scavenging plastic off the street, basically. Um, so as you might know, Argentina's economy melted down completely in 2001, left millions out of work and homeless overnight that the country was just devastated. So in the years that followed, people did steadily recover, but lots were left behind. And instead of a public recycling program like we have here in Canada, they had a program where they basically just put things out. People would put their recycling out on the, um, on the sidewalk and people would come and collect it and sell it for pennies of, on the kilogram. Mm -hmm. So we were saying like, how can we empower these people to do something with the plastic that's very low cost, very low uh, barrier to entry, um, but allows them to add value so that they can have some kind of opportunity at a better life. So helping them move from scavengers into small scale manufacturers and uh, entrepreneurs. So uh, love the way you brought that up in my bio. It represented to me a pretty big left turn. At that point, I was doubting whether engineering could be right for me. That didn't seem like a place where I could really have the impact that I wanted um, because I was working for big companies. And, and again, I knew I was saving money and I was having positive impact on the people around me. But in terms of like a bigger 
you know, impact on the world. Like I was thinking about my legacy in a way, maybe I was like 40 years early for that, but I was asking myself these questions in my late twenties and going, is engineering going to hold me back from having an impact on the world in that big way? And so I ended up messaging this professor that I'd met, you know, six years earlier, and she'd just been kind of a hero of mine since then. And she said, look, we, we got this project in Argentina. We've started it. We need somebody to go and be with it on the ground because it's, it's just not getting the traction that we need. And, um, you know, I had done a year in Peru, so I spoke Spanish. I had this project management skill set, as well as this, you know, sort of technical, financial and people triple threat skill set kind of thing to try and make things happen. And I love the idea of stepping outside of the factories, outside of the mines and saying, like, how can I apply myself in, in, in a sort of an out of the box way that's helping shift people's lives, giving them a bit of dignity, giving them a bit more earning power. Um, and it's this creative mashup of engineering and environmentalism. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but that's the story behind the, uh, the headline that you just rhymed off there for Waste for Our Life. It was one of the best things I've ever done. Well, so it's interesting that you talk about sort of searching for meaning in, in your work. Mm, um, big time. Two design thinking practitioners named Bill Burnett and Dave Evans wrote a book, which was, which was originally published in 2016 called Design Your Life. This book encouraged people to be more experimental with their life choices and check in with their own happiness as they progress through life. So you think of design thinking yes. principles, it's like iterate and check with your user. Well, you're the user of your life, right? Uh-huh. So I find that interesting because you scooped them by four years with your venture called Engineer <laughs> Your Life. Yes. Could you talk about the themes you cover in that? Oh, well, it's 100%. It's, it's super nerdy. It's super nerdy tip. It's it. like, how can we, how can we optimize for what we want? I mean, I think early in your career, you're like, how can I get a paycheck so I can have my own place? And how can I prove myself and figure out, you know, you're just kind of getting the wheels on, you know, you're just trying to, just trying to get on the road. And I think after that, once you're moving, you're like, okay, I got this. This is good. Now, where am I going? Why am I going there? And I coached some engineering students. I volunteered to coach some engineering students. That was kind of what it came down to, to say, hey, how are you making your choices? Are you doing it out of a default? Are you doing it out of fear? Are you doing it out of a lack of self-confidence? Or are you doing it out of, it out of a sense of purpose? And what, what is valuable to you? Like, where, where do you want to go? And sometimes in that early stage of the career, you don't even necessarily know yet but you kind of have a directional feel. You're like, I think I want to do something more with people. I think I want to do something more with heritage buildings, or I think I want to do something more with recycling. And I would meet with these, with these kids, you know, 19 to 20 ish years old, I get, no, sorry, they're out of university. So 23, 24 years old. And I, I developed a process, surprise, surprise, a process coming from a manufacturing engineer um, and a spreadsheet that they could follow. It was like my own little. OK, you promised me nerd, but that 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 put that that's credibility right there. If there's a there spreadsheet. A, yes. And there was a weighted matrix that they could use to help them make decisions. Beautiful. And it was it was kind of beautiful. I, I think I coached 12 or 20 people. Um, and then I lost the URL. Unfortunately, I just I, I missed an email and, and mm. let it lapse. But I'd love to bring back engineer your life someday, because what I recognized essentially that what I was doing was I was I was talking to myself eight years before. 
And I was trying to say, you got this kid, like, this is rough and it's okay. And it's so normal for you to feel all those feelings of self-doubt, even though it feels like it's only you. Um, Don't take it personally, just keep going. Um, it, It There's dignity in getting a job in a traditional industry. It doesn't have to be that super amazing, um, purpose led thing. Like, especially the, the, the kids today, I sound old, don't I? <laughs> it's a good thing. I think it's a beautiful thing that, um, today's students and recent grads are very purpose driven. I, I see that over and over again. They really want to know that what they're doing aligns with their values and is contributing to the world that they want to see. I think I, I share that with them. And maybe like you said, I'm a little, I was a little ahead of my time and I didn't quite know what to do with that instinct. Um, but I, I love to mentor young people and give them, just give them that encouragement. Um, so maybe I'll resurrect engineer your life again someday. Yeah, I think you should um, maybe you make a thank book. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll get a bit more organized. Uh, what are your thoughts on design thinking? It seems to me it has a lot in common with lean and six Sigma. Hmm. Yeah. Design thinking is just cooler than engineering. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, it comes better, with posted notes and yeah, yeah, better branding, better PR. Uh, yeah. I, there, I love the, design thinking. It, it, it strikes me that uh, you said this earlier that each, each one of these systems or approaches has, it's like horses for courses, right? You, you don't necessarily use a four wheel drive and a sports car for the same thing, even though yeah. they have much in common. Right. Mm-hmm. So have you applied design thinking or have you seen it impact the work you're doing? Has somebody come to you and said, we checked in with our users and we really ought to be doing this? That's such an interesting question. I think at this point, I've integrated it all so much that I don't always label which one I'm using, but I can tell you that I'm such a fan of lean startup thinking Mm -hmm. in general. Is that design thinking or is that a different thing? Well, I, the way I see the distinction, Mm -hmm. lean startup, so design thinking comes from the design community and the design community is pulling its hair out saying, stop designing things without checking with the user. Yeah, totally. Stop spending three years in a lab and going, ta-da, and nobody likes it, right? So iterate yep. and check in with the user. The, and really lean startup is the same thing. Don't go in, don't build your website for three years and then go, ta-da, and nobody cares. Yes. But the difference I see is that lean startup is... is um, minimum viable product. So we will actually try to sell you something and it could even be just making you click on the brochure to find out if you're interested, but we're going to put something in front of you that could represent value. Whereas, um, and that works really well on websites and apps. Typically Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily work well with a new boiler design. Although Eric Reese, who coined the term lean startup will argue Mm -hmm. that you can write a brochure for a boiler. So, but the, the, the design thinking people are really like prototype already. Don't go trying to make even a minimum viable product. Just draw it, ah, do it in okay. cardboard, something so that you can do it at very low cost. Mm-hmm. But really, they're I, just, see. They're, I think they're, they're quite, yeah, quite related. Yeah, quite related. Well, I, I have been working with a client recently and I, I said, you know what, I think you know how to do this. I'm not going to add any value to you through my expertise. I might validate things for you. I might go do a little research for you and help you choose between, you know, X, Y, Z option. 
But I think the best way I can offer you value right now is to teach you how to test this thing. Mm. And so that's what we did. And they, they were like, what? <laughs> and I, you know, we did the six thinking hats from mm-hmm. Edward de Bono. Yeah. I've heard of that. I got them to, I got them to use that. Um, to sort of define what their goals were for the programs that they wanted to design. And then, well, then COVID happened, we put everything on pause, but then we were able to come back to it, we pivoted to work together just virtually. And from there, we were able to start designing, I'm calling the minimum viable products, but maybe I should be calling them prototypes. Um, because we're testing out our assumptions as we go with these little chunks of content, and then eventually, it's all going to come together into a program. And I see so much, um, you know, this, this thing that engineers have where they care so much about making it great mm-hmm. that they try to polish it perfectly before they're willing to show it to anyone. And I mean, here we are back to the anti-perfectionism stance that I have, um, that I've developed, I guess, over the years to say, actually, this is great right now. It doesn't have to be perfect. Like take away that assumption because there's value in this already. So try to let your generosity and your desire to share this with people and to have the impact you're trying to have be greater than your fear of being judged. Mm-hmm. And that, I, I think, I, I hope that's, what, that's working. I guess you could ask my clients, um, you know, to encourage them to, to keep moving that ahead, keep checking your assumptions, be open. Don't, don't take it personally when someone tells you this is not what I need. This is terrible. This is nothing like what, you know, that's actually great. I try to, I try to reframe that for them yeah, and say like absolutely. getting that feedback. You didn't spend three years on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me, let me swing back a little bit. Um, partly just because what you're saying is so interesting. I'm bouncing around in terms of topics, but I want, I want to, I want to swing back to, um, it's all connected anyway. It's it all is good. all connected. And that's, <laughs> that's the exciting thing, right? And that, that's why we forget the details of where one ends and the other begins. Um, you talked about how you didn't say these words, but it's like a, a veil was lifted from your eyes and you're able to see ways of improving what the world around you. Mm. Can you turn that off when you're waiting in line at a gas station or something? <laughs> Are you like, why would you organize the chips this way? Why would you have the cash over here and that over there? Does it, does it just ring in your head all the time? Well, I hardly ever go anywhere these days. Okay. None yeah, of us are going true. anywhere. However, yes, absolutely. I see it all the time, especially if, you know, we're working and I've done a step and then someone else is like, oh, I just did this. I'll be like, no duplication. That's waste. Muda. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an occupational hazard. I accept I it. So. Um, so- and, and I think, you know, I, I try to see the positive side of that, which is that the things I can control that I can change myself. Um, that's like, that's like my superpower. That's the thing that I have that not everybody does. Right. So rather than pull my hair out of the, over the things I can't change, I try to be very disciplined about where I can focus that energy. So there, there are, there, there's like 12 steps of lean six Sigma. <laughs> you have to accept the things you cannot change. Yes. Yeah, oh, of yeah. course. Always. Um, one thing that bugs me and I, I don't know, maybe it shouldn't, maybe there's a perfectly good reason for it, but when you see videos of cars being manufactured, especially at Tesla, for some reason, maybe just because that's mm. where I'm looking, they always show the dramatic shots. You know, the one where the robot picks up the entire chassis, turns it around, does a pirouette and puts it down somewhere else. And it looks cool. But why do you need a million dollar machine to move the chassis? Like it could be on a conveyor belt. What are you doing? 
Mm. Do you see that sometimes like showboating, just doing things because you can? You see that at Amazon too. Like, why do you need that million dollar <laughs> machine to lift a pallet up to another level? Hmm. Like over designing? Yeah, it does feel like that to me. I can take a crack at why that would be. And I, I'll give a bit of a shout out to another hero of mine. His name is Bruce. And he's Bruce Taylor, and he's just amazing. He is a, an engineer turned consultant turned entrepreneur, and he has a B Corp, a purpose-led business, right? And what he noticed, long story short, uh, when he was doing his consulting work was that the way that they awarded promotions and the way that they um, awarded prestige, frankly, in the consulting world was how big is the solution that you're manufacturing? Mm -hmm. What's the size of the contract? What's the, you know, the, the procurement, the complexity, all of it, the number of people you get assigned to work for you. It was all dependent on the size of the solution. It often did not square with the needs of that particular problem. And the type of consulting that he does now, he said, you know, it, it's hard to charge a lot of money for it. And, you know, a good thing, because he's in it for people, planet and profit, um, He's like, you know, go over to the boiler and turn off that tap. Like, that, you know, that, that valve's not supposed to be open. Close it. There you go. I just saved you $10,000. Right. You know what I mean? So there's this, I think there can be a tendency to go toward the over-design because we accidentally attach ourselves to the wrong success indicators. We look at the visuals of it or we award on a certain basis as opposed to scaling back and, and taking a truly lean approach to say, like, is that all necessary? Could we get rid of some of that? Is it adding value or is it just adding cost? Okay, that, that's, that's great. I have a question later on, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it on you now. So given your experience, uh, because you, as a consultant, you're in multiple situations, multiple companies, multiple industries, which is worse, oversimplification or overcomplication? And please restrict your answer to one word. I'm just kidding. You can use, I'm, <laughs> that is in, implying uh, oversimplification. Right, right. Um, What's more definitely dangerous? Definitely, no, overcomplication is more, uh, more prevalent in my experience. I think often people don't take the time to simplify, tidy things out, get rid of the, you know, the things that are not necessary. I think in any given process that I map with a new client, um, we can look at the process from end to end and we can end, you know, working the tools, we can get rid of 30 to 40% of the, of the process of the, the cost or the value, whatever, however you want to phrase it. And that's not because they're particularly wasteful. It's just because of the legacy of the way things tend to grow up. And, oh, we used to have that system, but now we don't have it anymore. So people are still filling out that form, even though it's this one that we need now. And they're just all these little stories that go together to make this overly complicated process. Um, I, I think that, let me just think, oversimplification or overcomplication. I mean, I like the overcomplication because that's opportunity for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's, again, that's, that. yeah. that's an occupational hazard, right? Of, of thinking about problems as opportunities. I, I you know, there's a, there's a mental flip there that happens so quickly. I almost don't see it. Yeah. Um, have lean and six Sigma been applied to construction? 
Because it, it certainly mm. looks, when you're watching construction outside your window, it certainly doesn't look like it. <laughs> it looks really haphazard. Doesn't look that I, organized? You, yeah, it doesn't look that organized to me. Mm. I did a project with a construction company. It was not related to the site, though. It was related to the certification of the people working at the site. So we were organizing the business process behind it. Um, I guess maybe a reason if it's not that organized is just because they figure it's not really repeatable. We're not going to be able to do this again anyway. This is a temporary situation. So maybe they feel like there's no value in it. Um, But that'd be a great question. I'd maybe sit and do a spaghetti diagram sometime of, uh, of a construction <laughs> worker's path. You know, that's where you, you track where they, where they walk in a, in an hour. Oh, right, right. Like the family circus cartoons, you know, with mm-hmm. the little dots yeah. all over the place. Yeah. You look for that and you say, okay, how much of that could I have eliminated if I were to reconfigure the work area? Did you, did you say spider diet? What, what was the diagram you called it? Uh, spaghetti spaghetti diagrams. It, it looks like so, it looks like a tangle of pasta right. when you first start i would love to see a, a spaghetti diagram of a new subdivision being built and all the dirt they move back and forth from one hill to another i'm sure uh-huh. they could optimize that but maybe, mm. maybe you know maybe it's not fair me sitting in my air-conditioned office <laughs> watching i don't know um there's a scene in seinfeld where jerry explains that after having cereal he washes the bowl and the spoon and puts them away together for the next day. Is this lean? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's a purpose. That was a great example. Yeah, it's a purpose-built situation. Um, I guess that would more specifically be an example of five S, which is workplace organization. Lay that on me. The, What's five S? Yeah. Okay. So it's a it's five phases, and it you know originally it was in Japanese. They had the five phases, all starting with S. And uh, initially, you just get rid of everything that you don't need. That's sort, declutter, basically. There, then there's um, set in order, which is put them in a sequence that makes sense. That would be basically Jerry saying like, okay, this is where I need this. This is where I'm going to put it. Um, often it's to do as well with creating patterns. They'll do you know, a shadow board of wrenches all the way from the largest one down to the smallest right. one kind of thing. Yes, um, That's a classic technique. And the neat thing about this, um, is that what you're trying to do is make any problems obvious, which again is a flip from the traditional thinking that says like, oh, if there's a problem, better hide it so the boss doesn't get us in trouble. This is like saying, no, let's put it right out there. Let's put the wrenches on the wall and make little little um, circles around each one of them so that we can see very obviously if one is missing. And then we're going to find it. We're going to correct that before we need them and it becomes an emergency. Um, so where, we, where are we? Sort set in order shine, which is clean, like that's the physical cleaning. And again, this is back to a Toyota tradition that says that when you clean, you can see things, you get rid of the excess dirt and oil, and it becomes obvious what's leaking for, you know, uh, to take one example, and that would be your cue to replace that particular um, hydraulic line or whatever it might be. Standardized is the next one where you set up systems to try and maintain what you've done in the first three S's. And then the fifth S is to sustain which is the hardest one. Right. So that is um, the, the overview, I guess, of, of the 5S uh, method. And it's been around since forever with, within manufacturing. Um, there is a really interesting resurgence now of these different decluttering and organizing uh, franchises like the Home Edit, for one. I don't know if you've mm. heard of them. They have a podcast and an Instagram account. Well, uh, and it, 
Kondo, Marie Kondo has the same kind of. Exactly. Yeah. Marie, very aligned. Very, very interesting. Um, it's like a prettier version of 5S. <laughs> <laughs> Which very validating for me to joy. see that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we need to talk to Jerry. He needs to put a line around where the bowl should go so that it always goes back to the same spot. And uh, yeah, and a little a little hook clip around the spoon, so he's got it sort of locked in there. Right, that would be right. taking it to the next level. For maybe, sure. maybe. <laughs> um, so, one of the oh no, so I've I've talked about that. Um, you chair the board of directors of an organization called Engineers of Tomorrow. What does Engineers of Tomorrow do? Okay, awesome. Really glad you brought that up. So at the beginning, when you asked me how I became an engineer, and I gave you my little mini bio there telling you all these, you know, weaving in the threads from my younger life and things. um, That's my engineering story. And I realized once I got into engineering, that even though I didn't really see myself as an engineer, it was sort of a happy accident that happened at the last minute in high school that I chose engineering at all, um, that it's really been a good fit for me. It's been a good ride. And I want to make sure that kids get the memo on engineering a little earlier. So I started in a collaboration with Engineers Without Borders Canada in 2013, um, basically to talk to kids about engineering. They had an opening, they had an opportunity. I stepped in and they encouraged me, uh, okay, a little bit of arm twisting, a little bit of uh, ego flattery to say, look, you are the right person to tell this story. You need to build this into a venture. Um, So I was incubated by Engineers Without Borders Canada Um, until I had the great fortune of meeting up with a classmate and a friend of mine from university who was looking to take another turn in her career. Um, She had been working in manufacturing as well after graduating from chemical engineering. Um, And we had worked together as camp counselors in university. We did science quest together and I hired her as one of my instructors. And so we worked together um, then and we'd known each other forever. So 2016 comes along uh, we met back up. She worked with me for a little while on engineers without uh, on the engineers without borders project. And once we realized that we really had something here, you know, talking to kids about engineering is something that we love to do. And, you know, we've been doing it now for how many years since, since we were undergrads, but we couldn't really reach all the kids that we would want to personally ourselves, unless we, you know, did nothing else 24 <laughs> seven. We realized in order to scale this, we would need to leverage other engineers and engineering professionals to tell their stories. And so we realized that's where sort of the magic came when we could inspire other people to get in front of kids in their lives and in their communities. And so we did this first through the National Engineering Month campaign, uh, which we ran for several years, learned a lot about what works and what doesn't. Um, We then took over the Engineer in Residence program, which was under Professional Engineers Ontario at the time. And since then, Uh, We launched as an organization in 2018 with my colleague Becky as the CEO and me as the founder. Um, And then once we we needed to put together a board of directors and I was very pleased to be uh, selected, uh, elected by the the body of of the organization. Um, So it's sort of been my baby from the start. And then I got, you know, I was very, very lucky to have this amazing collaborator come. She runs the organization day to day. She's got a team of people um, and I'm supporting her from the background as the founder. So we just went national um, in the last couple months with a a partnership with Engineers Canada. And we held a a volunteer appreciation night. We had to do it virtually, of course, um, but it was just fantastic. We got to give out awards 
to four of our outstanding engineers and residents, people that have been going to classrooms, you know, virtually now and providing that support, providing that inspiration to kids, um, running activities through Zoom or through, you know, Google Meetup or whatever they're doing um, and sharing their story, you know, saying this is this is who I am. This is why I chose engineering. This is what it means to me. And we knew it was going to affect the kids in a positive way. We, we inherited these programs. They were already big successes, very beloved programs by the parents, the teachers, the kids. We, we, we just knew that, that that already was dialed in. What we didn't anticipate was the way that the volunteers themselves mm. would be affected and changed. And because we, we coach them to, to dig deep, you know, like tell your story as a human. Don't just go up there and act like you're in, you know, your, your weekly meeting where you, where you launch right into the technical problem. The kids are going to, they're going to glaze over, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to go on their phones or what, I don't know if they can do that, but you know, you're not going to capture anyone's imagination right. by leading with your technical side. You need to lead with your human side. So cueing them to do that very purposefully got them in touch with their purpose and meaning and made them feel a lot of the time like, Hey, I am successful. I did set out to do what I wanted to do. You know, they, they describe themselves in a different way. Engineers can be very humble as, as you know, and um, very, um, very hard on themselves sometimes. So we see this as a, a really great way for them to build their confidence, especially early in their career. We love working with engineering students um, and just watching their engineering identity kind of blossom within the time that they work with us or for us. It's, it's amazing. Fantastic. As, as I think about you talking about the engineers of tomorrow and uh, the the um, engineering hopefuls of yesterday, you described your life as tinkering. You know, you were in the mud, mm-hmm. you were building things, fixing things. The world is, you know, even in our very young lives, the world has changed around us and yeah. we don't have the right to repair we're probably mm-hmm. in an apartment where we don't have access to tools and, and a workbench. Kids are growing up in a more confined way. Mm. Do you see that and coming up with some of the young people you meet in, in this program? Hmm. Well, I don't know if this exactly relates, but it, I, I mean, I think it does sort of answer what you're looking for. Um, a friend of mine and I went back to Queens to receive awards that we that we'd gotten in 2019, um, and we went into the the student uh, pub, the engineering pub. Of course, the foosball tables there from back in the day. Um, and didn't we just kick the asses of the students that were there? Oh, sorry, can I say asses? <laughs> we beat them so badly. I was embarrassed for them. I mean, it was That's great terrible. fun. Don't get me wrong. And I was thinking. Have they lost eye-hand coordination? Are they are they on their devices too much? Oh, That's yeah. kind of the one data point I have. And I don't get in front of the kids that aren't my own um, anymore as often. I would love to do that again sometime. And to your point about living in a non, like increasingly non-tinker-friendly society, I really hope we can stem that tide because that is so worthwhile, I think. Not even just as far as encouraging future engineers, but just future people who know how to fix stuff. Like yeah. that's such an empowering thing to be able to do. And we're also, even though the title of our organization is Engineers of Tomorrow, we really believe in promoting all of the different flavors of STEM or SET, you might even say science, engineering, trades, technology. Um, 
we think that the stigma against those hands-on, you know, the more blue collar sides of the profession, I think that's completely irrelevant and outdated. You know, some of the smartest people I've met are mechanics and millwrights. I had them on my Six Sigma team and I needed them to succeed and get where I did. So I think this, this idea of, of having like hierarchy where the scientists are the, are at the top and engineers are next and, you know, technicians and and trades are at the bottom. I think that's completely wrong and backwards. And we need to take that hierarchy and shift it sideways and go look at all the flavors. This is June, right? It's pride month. It's a, it's a rainbow of different opportunities and the kids, people should go where their strengths are. Right. recognizing that there's value and there's dignity and there's opportunity in all of those paths. And no one is better than the other. So what you're describing um, is one of those, one of those issues where not only is it the right thing to do uh, it tends to be an advantage if you get around to it and uh, that egalitarian attitude, because mm. I, I heard somebody talking, it was a, an astronaut actually on a podcast, forgive me, I forget his name, but he was talking about, the, the change he's seeing in the air in the rocket building industry. Now, okay. partly it's because uh, we have the tools at our disposal that a team building a rocket can consist of a hundred people rather than 10,000 people in the Apollo era. Okay. So there's that advantage, but that means you can all be under one roof. And so the people putting together the rocket can look over the cubicle and say, come here and take a look at this. Hmm. The thing you designed is just not working. Hands can't get in there to build this. And so that, 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 you know, one group of people, the mechanical people that are putting it together and the people who are doing the designing are very much a level playing field to the advantage of being nimble and lean and being able to produce rockets more efficiently. So there's a lot to what you're saying. Love that. I've heard Nissan is doing that too. They make their engineers go work on the floor. Yes. And then send them back to the drawing board and say, are you sure you want to design it that way? It's called design for manufacturing. And yeah, it, it makes a higher quality product. It makes it easier for people to manufacture. And I love that it brings engineers into the real world, so to speak, that, that they don't need to be, you know, sort of above or disconnected from the thing that they're producing. Yeah, I'm trying to remember um, what part it is. There's some part, I think it's a, I think it's a, uh, um, an oil delivery tube in the V of a V of a BMW engine that will okay. blow up after your warranty blows up is gone and will cost you an entire rebuild. Thanks. So it's not just that we should have the, the designers on the, on the construction floor. We should have them in the garage too, occasionally. Cause yeah. you might be like, Oh, okay. You're right. That doesn't need to be made out of plastic. <laughs> if it's got to be in the, that deep in the engine for life. My uncle and I have this ongoing banter because he's a truck mechanic, very highly certified, super intelligent guy. And I'm, you know, I'm the engineer in the family. We go back and forth and shakes his fist. Damn yeah, engineers. Yeah. You, you engineers. Know? Yeah. What do I, say, you I know, I know, I know you're right. <laughs> we can't be everywhere. Um, we do try. So we're getting, we're getting close to the end. This has been a terrific conversation. I, I have yeah, two questions you. left. Um, what kind of work do you do in your consulting firms and what kind of clients do you connect with? Hmm. Now that's an interesting question. Cause like I said, my sort of meat and potatoes to this point has been helping processes get incrementally better. 
And you can take that to the bank because you can do the calculation. And there you go. There's, there's the cost savings. And when I got into business, I kind of thought I was going to keep doing that. And the things that people are actually calling me for and actually wanting to pay me for are, are quite different. Mm. <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, you know, first of all, getting involved in the leadership conversation and, and the culture conversation as much as the technical problem solving or, or change management conversation. I do have aspirations to um, sort of dust off my change management toolkit um, there's something called a CCMP, which I'm going to pursue, Certified Change Management Professional, which is sort of um, analogous to the PMP, but it includes the financial and people side of managing a project or a change as well. Um, so I think that that's a really rich use of my time to help companies navigate change. I think it's something that I'm pretty passionate about and I'm starting to um acquire a certain amount of pattern recognition for what people are going through and a certain amount of empathy and skill in, in steering them through that. Um, I think that I'm also really interested in innovation in step change uh, process, you know, process changes. Um, how are we going to embed circularity into our business? How are we going to switch our business model? How are we going to pivot to a different delivery model or a different product family um, automotive, for example, like the end of the internal combustion engine is within our lifetime. Who would have ever thought that, right? So I think, and maybe these things kind of fit together, you know, that the change management side, as well as these radical changes in terms of being able to adapt to the world that we're seeing around us. Um, I guess that's where I hope to go. Um, and maybe I'm practicing a little bit of my own, uh, my own medicine there by saying, you know, where I've been and where I am now is not necessarily um, where, where I'm going. So I, I, I'd love to navigate or, or help companies navigate these challenges. Um, manufacturing, mining, professional services, that's sort of my track record so far, the, the, the highlights of it. Um, I've also worked with nonprofits uh, other than my own. I've worked with uh, entrepreneurs um, and, and, and I'm, I'm pretty open, which makes me kind of hard to, hard to sell, but it's, it's very interesting to me to, to see how these, these methods and these ideas can apply to so many different industries and so many different companies. Wow. Okay. So you've, you've scooped my last question, which was going oh. to be, <laughs> no, but no, I'll give you another <laughs> kick at it if you'd like, or I can move on to, to another question that you've raised with what you talked about. Mm -hmm. Are there any industries or challenges you wish you could get a consulting gig in connection with because it just looks so cool? So you talked a little bit about uh, the, you know, moving to electric vehicles. Um, yeah. And that sounds pretty cool to me. Um, are there other things you just wish, oh, you know, if somebody came in the door saying you would, you would say it under your breath, I'll do it for free, but you wouldn't do it for free. But what right. it would be so cool, you would be tempted. Um, things to do with circularity. I'm just such a big fan. I mean, I have a, a friend of mine who worked for Ikea Canada at the time that they rolled out their, um, furniture return program. Oh, I didn't um, know they had that. Yeah. That's very cool, interesting. Right? Yeah. yeah. Really cool. Cause they know exactly what they're taking apart. Yeah. 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 And they can, so they, they do. Um, I think that that's fantastic. Um, anything to do with B Corp and kind of raising the bar on business in general, um, saying, you know, it's not just what we can do 
here inside our factory or within our four walls, but also about the impact that we're having and how can we expand that and how can we be more creative and more um, adept at, at making the, the change happen that we want to see, not just through our products, but maybe in other ways as well. Um, I think a lot of these companies, they, they struggle with the perception of their industry. For example, manufacturing and mining, they have trouble attracting the next generation of talent. I think because they've been confined in the past, right, to just making stuff or just taking minerals out of the ground. They're now recognizing they want to look at the bigger picture. They want to have, you know, whether it's um, corporate social responsibility, giving back to the communities where they are. Um, as far as manufacturing goes, it could be manufacturing 4.0, you know, involving these new technologies, making things more efficient. Um, once they sort of up their game, there's going to be this positive effect in terms of their ability to attract more talent. Um, and I, I would love for them to get involved with engineering outreach as well, because there's the positive impact they get to, Im they get to right. inspire the next generation. Um, they get to pump up the employees that they have already because they're so jazzed about getting to talk to kids about what they're doing and, and do little cool simulations of their, of their industry. Right. And then there's also all of the positive um, things that happen once you start to become a learning organization that, that, is, that is looking out over the deck and starting to innovate as a company in a bigger way. It all sort of, that's a, a, a positive snowball that just keeps going. Okay, I'm going to try not to snowball my questions. I, I promise you this is going to be the last one because you, hey, mentioned, I you mentioned project management and I have not, I don't have my PMP, but I've had PMP training. So I, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with project management. And I, I feel like there are certain conditions under which it works well. Um, and certainly lean and design thinking are almost counter reactions to this idea that we have to spend a year planning and then three years doing, mm -hmm. and we have to stick mm -hmm. to the plan for the whole three years. It's, it's, it's adapting to your circumstances, knowing they're going to change all the time. Yes. Do you, um, where does project management fit into your skill set? When do you use it? Wow, that's such a good question. I think that project management is about laying out the big umbrella for where we think we're going. And then design thinking, lean thinking is about doing the iterations along that path to get us there. I think the two fit together. However, what you're saying about navigating uncertainty is super interesting because I think that the tools that, that are taught in PMP, and I, I, don't have my, I don't have my PMP either, but from what I understand, you're, you're basically working on a solid foundation. You're assuming that your conditions aren't going to change. Your assumptions aren't going to change. And increasingly, that is just not the case. Everything is changing and it's changing faster than ever. Um, especially in the last 15 months when, you know, they say we've had, you know, 10 years worth of change in the last 15 months. Yeah. We never thought that people could see a doctor virtually. And yet here we are, you know, or, you know, fill in the blank of all the things that we, all the jobs that we said couldn't be done from home. So I am not sure if I deliberately use project management. I guess I would use it on a smaller scale basis where I can see far enough down the road to say, okay, we got to execute to here. And so, you know, using my dependencies and my, um, you know, 
what is it? Gantt chart, the Gantt chart building yeah. up my Gantt chart. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, I could see myself using that potentially, but probably everything else is, um, is kind of a lean iterative or, or agile kind of approach. That's terrific. Thank you so much, Erica. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for doing, I'm so flattered. You took the time to look me up and get to know my long and winding path. And, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. Thank you. It's a, it's a, you have a terrific career. You, you should be very proud. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you so much. My guest today was Erica Lee Garcia. Erica's LinkedIn address will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 